gentle listener i am ethan bartlett and i am michael lilienthal and this is a weird episode of michael and ethan in a room don't, with scotch don't call it a weird episode call it a special episode well it is a special episode but it's also weird because it does have michael and ethan but we're not in a room not technically not a physical room yeah. in in a room in the ethernet yeah, we're in we're in a room in your mind. In your mind. We are we are coming to you from the backside of your brain. Oh, don't turn around. You won't be able to see us cuz we'll then be on the other side still in the back. Yep. Always you in turned the back. Around, didn't you? You did. <laughs> you look silly. Stop. People are yeah. looking. Just uh <laughs> just fast forward the podcast tape to no, past the point where no, you look. We just established that we're in the internet. <laughs> oh yeah. The podcast tape on the internet anyway <laughs> um. so yes this is a very special episode of michael and ethan in a room with scotch it is the tapestry radio shakespeare festival special yay yay which i believe other stuff uh with the tapestry radio shakespeare festival um mm-hmm. pokemon rollout recorded a shakespeare episode yep as i understand which is out by the time you're listening to this. That's so. not confusing at all. Timey-wimey. Um, Wibbly-wobbly, yeah. Stop. Um, and there's hopefully going to be some uh, some special, actual, like, Shakespeare readings and, and audio drama of that nature from the, the intermission cast. Uh-huh. So that'll be So fun. that's that. So, uh... For Michael and Ethan in a room with Scotch, obviously, we always pick a text. And mm-hmm. for our Shakespeare festival this month, we decided to do Dr. Faustus. But no, wait, wait no. no. Oh, sorry. No. Uh, That's not true. Yeah. Mr. Marlowe tried to worm his way into this, this festival just like he keeps trying to worm his way into Shakespeare's legacy. But He wormed his way into this play that we'll be discussing because he was dead and being eaten by worms. That is true. That is true. Boom! Um, okay. In one of the more, like, weirdly political asides of Shakespeare's usually pretty cagey, you know, with politics, on account of, like, the most powerful people in England were often his patrons. Right. (laughs) Or the friends of his patrons, so he kind of had to be. Yeah. uh, Because people did lose their heads over having the wrong political views at that time. And I I mean that literally. Um, Quite, quite literally. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so what play are we reading, Michael? I don't think we've said yet. No, we haven't. We are reading As You Like It by Shakespeare. Whatever play as you like it. Whatever play you like. That's like that, that verse you uh, quote when you're pretending to quote scripture, but you don't actually know anything from the Bible. You're just like, he who shall, so shall he. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Uh, so, the other reason this is a weird episode, mm-hmm. not really in a room, right? Uh, we also don't have scotch. No, we don't. Sad. I'm very sad. It is sad. I, I, I would prefer to be having scotch. Oh, Karen, I meant to tell you this beforehand, but we might as well get it out there for the for the gentle listener to hear. Sure. Karen, uh, my wife, 
she suggested that like if we ever have a final episode or some sort of milestone episode, we should take all of the leftover scotches, scotch from all of the other episodes, and just pour it together. That sounds horrible and wonderful. I I told her half of that statement. I didn't add wonderful to it. <laughs> she was like, pour it together and then drink it through silly straws out of a dog bowl. And I was like, at the point that we've poured it all together, we might as well do that because right. we've destroyed all pretense of dignity. It's true. <laughs> uh, one dog bowl that we'll share and we'll drink through silly straws. On our audio podcast. On our audio podcast. Um, yes. So what are you drinking, Michael? Uh, I am drinking a beer. This is uh, Uper Ale from Upper Hand Brewery. Uh, so from the UP of Michigan. Okay. Uh, I would like to say that you have just lost. Well, you said I'm drinking a beer, and then you immediately said it was Uper Ale. Yeah. <laughs> ale and beer are very different, Michael. And if you ask me to back that statement up, I won't be able to, because I don't know how they're different. (laughs) I just know that they're different. Okay. Anyway, Youper Ale says of itself, (laughs) Youper Ale is a nod to what makes us Youpers. Just like life in the UP, it is simple yet beautiful, offering a smooth mouthfeel from UP-grown oats. This sessionable pale ale is rounded out with bright citrus aromas, so grab some neighbors and celebrate what makes life north of the bridge so special. Um, Very good. And I will say one of the more positive selling points on this is that it has UP-grown oats, which is okay. adding an interesting layer to it. It is very smooth. What are you drinking? Good. I have gone all fancy. Um, I've been experimenting with cocktails for a while. And tonight, I made myself one of my uh, favorite cocktails um, so far, which is called the Corpse Reviver Number 2, which the original uh, bar book from, I want to say, the 1930s, so it may have been earlier, had a whole string of Corpse Revivers, and I don't remember which bar book it was at all, so that's really quite useless information. But um, the Number 2 is the one that you see reprinted a lot in more modern books. It's a combination of gin and i use new amsterdam gin because it's good enough and i'm a cheapskate um then there's lilit lilit blanc which is a type of fortified wine with quinine that quinine however you say that yeah. um so it's it's quite delicious all by itself and then there's lemon juice there's triple sec and then there's just a dash of absinthe you notice pretty much every cocktail with absinthe tells you to add it in like half of a half of a teaspoon quantities or less uh you really don't need much absinthe to completely take over a drink but sure uh when you you put all that in a shaker shake it up with ice it becomes just this very sort of little bit frothy kind of citrusy uh you know very very sort of refreshing summery taste to it and you know citrusy and and you know a little bit a little bit floral a little bit herbal it's it's just a very nice sort of a a summer drink i would say cool though i'm sure i will drink it all winter because uh you know screw the rules and all that (laughs) beat the system yeah down with the man (laughs) yep whoever right Um, which being that i'm a manager in an establishment and you're a pastor like we both kind of are the man we are yeah 
no, you the man. That attitude. You a man. Well, thank you. <laughs> yeah. Good. Um. So should we say the same rules apply despite the fact that we're not in a room and we're not? I would say so. Scotch. Should we just say all ac- alcoholic beverages just to not atomize yeah. too much? Yeah. I think that's fair. Okay. So, uh, we'll say in a moment, we'll toast each other. Mm-hmm. After the toast, no mention of alcoholic beverages. What else can't we mention? Uh, mothers. Uh, in any joking or pejorative sense, any sense, essentially, that is not specifically called for by the play. Yes. Uh, very good. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I'll... further rules, I... Must not say the phrase first paragraph. Mm-hmm. Should be easy for you with a play. <laughs> I would hope. I might still manage it. Yeah, you might. You might. I'm going to hope for the best. I'll listen for it. Yeah. Uh, and I may not say the word vampire or any of its derivatives. Vampiric. Vampiric. Vampirism. Yep. Vampiristic. Mm-hmm. Vampironimo. Um, I don't think that's one. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't know. Really. I get to a certain point, and I'm just making sounds with my lips. Sure. Furthermore, so, the rule that we established last episode for future episodes. Oh, I remembered that we established one, but I couldn't remember what it was. Ah, see, the rule is that anyone who takes a potty break in the middle of the episode also loses. Ah, oh, crap. <laughs> so, keep that one so, in mind. All right, uh, I will. And what happens if anybody loses? The loser, then, must suffer the punishment as prescribed by the other person, here named the not-loser, because as we know, there are no, there winners. Are no winners. Punishment is usually some sort of verbal stunt, uh, but really technically can be anything. I think yeah. we just try to sort of design it so that it plays in an audio Yeah, it comes medium. out audio-wise. Yeah. yeah. All right. That being established uh, and ready? Yes, indeed. L'chaim. Slancha. Bump. All right. So what did you think of this play, Michael? Well, I'd like to say I have never read or seen this play before this reading, and of that I am ashamed. Uh, really? <laughs> yeah. I'm um, actually a little bit surprised by that. Me too. See, I kind of thought I had. I I owned a copy, a Signet Classics copy of As You Like It. Sure. Uh, but apparently it had just been sitting on my shelf and I hadn't actually read it. I mean, I have collected editions and things, but when I can, I like to get a sure. pocket edition of the individual plays. Oh, yeah. No, I have, I think, three single volume complete works of Shakespeare. Yeah. Well, two single volume and one is like a, a three volume, but it's still massive. Right. Given volume of it. So, yeah, I do like you. I collect versions that will actually fit in my pocket and I can take anywhere in public without looking like an insane even person. more of a freak than usual. Yeah, an insane person. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I look enough like an insane person already. So, sure. you know. So, now I have read this play once. Um, okay. I did recognize many of the lines from the play. Um, yeah. For example, All the World's a Stage is from this play. Right, and that that whole speech turns up a lot. Yep, yep. It's very um, famous. Other than, like, to be or not to be, and maybe, you know, the, the Macbeth monologues. Like, yeah. all the world's a stage might be one of the best-known monologues, period. 
Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, that and a few other other lines were familiar to me. Um, mm-hmm. But other than that, never read it before. And on my first reading, I gotta say, it's good. <laughs> <laughs> it's a controversial opinion to raise around uh, Shakespeare. Yeah, I know. It's uh, see, I'm I love Shakespeare. I, I love right. like everything he wrote. This was good. It just wasn't my favorite. Uh, and see, I've heard it referred really? to as one of the high comedies, and uh-huh. I kind of get it. See, the the one thing that keeps me from just saying meh to the whole thing is that the resolution to this play is fantastic. I uh-huh. love how it all comes together, um, especially sure. the epilogue. <laughs> the epilogue <laughs> killed me. Um, so it... it the the way it fits in my mind is it's it's kind of so when when you're in the mood to sit down and veg on Netflix, uh, right. you you tend to get a genre in mind for what you want to watch. Sometimes you're in the mood for something intense like a, a thriller or a good horror movie right. or something. Sometimes in your, you're in the mood for a light comedy. Sometimes in your you're in the mood for a stupid comedy. This I right. think tends more towards the stupid comedy sort of idea. Uh, there is some smartness to it, but a lot of it, 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 you just have to soak it in, not expecting super deep stuff necessarily. There is some, there is, but that's not what this play is all about, I feel. So now that you've ventured every possible opinion about this play and the opposite of each of those opinions. Yep. (laughs) uh, Okay, I'm going to say... I have a, a slightly different different take on this play. Okay. Um, you know, even though, and again, like you said, we're both Shakespeare fanboys. Like, if you don't want to hear a podcast about, like, how much we both love Shakespeare... Turn it like, off. Like, just stop the tape right now. Tape. Um, you know, let, let, let it unspool. Uh, make <sighs> one of those tapes that you throw on the floor of your car and you smash and you feel guilty because there's ribbon everywhere. You know, just stop. Um, I died. It was a fascinating sound, and I don't know if it was just fascinating because of it being mediated over my computer speakers or, or what. I don't know, but it was good. Thank anyway, you. um, now that said, you know, with a, with a baseline of pretty much, I love Shakespeare, and there's very little Shakespeare I won't just you know enjoy reading mm-hmm. to one extent or another, save for maybe some of his later plays that like maybe weren't all entirely written by him anyway. And even those, like, have their moments, frankly. Yeah. You know, so, all right, that said, that is our baseline. Now, Michael, I need you to get your swear button ready. Okay. Like, because you're going to have to, you're going to have to get me. Because the only thing I can say about this play, you ready? I love this play. Oh, okay. Ah, you got me. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) <laughs> you hit the swear button. It, it did. got me, which is only fair. Um, <laughs> and I just... I don't know. Part of it is almost I love it in spite of everything about it. Um, okay. But sort of not not really in spite of because I think all of the things that like you could say, at least that I'm about to say, that like Oz, I, I have to think are intentional because they're so systematic... And in a sense, they fit in with a lot of the themes and the, the stuff that's going on in this play, right? Sure. So what I mean about that is that 
like I was thinking of subtitles for this play, and you know, all I could think of were things like "As You Like It," where we mess around in the forest of Arden for four acts. <laughs> um, Accurate. As you like it. Uh, there is a plot, but we forgot about it mostly. <laughs> also accurate. Right? See, and that's the thing about this play. And that's, like, in a sense, it's one of the things that I just love about this play. Like, so, you know, to give the, the reader an overview and, like, spoiler warning, I guess? But, like... Spoilers? You've had this... 400 years. To... <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah. <laughs> this play has been out for 400 years, so... I guess I don't real really, you know, and it almost doesn't. It almost doesn't even matter. It really, right? it really doesn't. Who cares about? It's a Shakespeare play. As right. as innovative as Shakespeare plays are, they're they're formulaic. You can predict the end. If it's a tragedy, well, everybody dies. If it's a comedy, everybody gets married. And in this one, it's a comedy. Literally, everybody gets married. Yeah, yeah, right. Um, <laughs> but also, like, even for a Shakespeare play, the plot like almost doesn't matter in this one. It's true. It really, really um, doesn't. You know, it's it's really just almost an excuse. Okay, so spoilers. Um, you know, we have this this sort of like pre, uh, um, you know, a little bit of an in media race beginning where uh, mm-hmm. we have a situation where one duke has usurped another duke and who is his brother and has banished his brother and the brother is going to live in the forest of Arden. That's already yeah. happened when the play has started. It's kind, it, so, it kind of know. struck me as a little bit of a much ado about nothing beginning. Sure. Just a yeah. little bit. And also, um, obviously, The Tempest. Yes, yes. Uh, Very much Tempest. You know, in some ways, it's like, it's The Tempest with, with just, like, even more messing around. <laughs> more um, messing around and fewer fairies. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, so that's happened to begin with. Now, the Duke's daughter is still at court, the banished Duke's daughter, because she's close to the daughter of the, the usurper. Um, mm-hmm. That daughter gets gets threatened as the play begins. She has to flee. She goes into the Forest of Arden. Her dad, the Duke, is already in the Forest of Arden. We have this other plot with with Orlando and his brother Oliver. There's the, the whole brotherhood theme that yeah, very really much, starts very much strong at the beginning, and then we forget about it. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> in a sense, in a sense, we do, but in a sense, yeah, like. It's- a it's lot fair. of, you know, what plot does happen in the middle act, a lot of it is about sort of broken, you know, relationships, yeah. broken, like, symmetries that should be there but aren't. And that's part of why I think some of the messing around was intentional. Like, it's it really sort of is form-following theme where with these broken symmetries, all we have to do is, like, mess around in the forest. Mm-hmm. You know, okay. So, yeah, so, and then Orlando sort of, Similarly gets threatened by his brother, Oliver, who there's that disinheriting thing going on again, like with the two dukes. Mm-hmm. Um, and upshot being Orlando sort of has to end up fleeing also into the Forest of Arden. So everyone's going into the Forest of Arden. And, you know, I know there have been theses written on sort of this, as you like it, as one of the ultimate expressions of the pastoral, right? This, sure. this the dichotomy where... Uh, court and the city are you know which is one that that has resonated throughout literature up to you know this very day the idea that like court and the city is this very busy very dirty very sort of squalid and hectic and and almost byzantine you know life where you might get stabbed in the back and die at any moment as opposed to like the country and the 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 you know 
the forest being this this realm of like I idol and peace and you know sort of sort of mm-hmm. there's yeah there's, the, the ultimate pastoral thing t- uh, there's a scene in act three where touchstone deliberately talks about the differences between court and yes. the wilderness and it's interesting because i think you could read that as sort of a, a hit back almost against the whole simplistic pastoral dichotomy the yep. dichotomy of you know woods and nature good city and and court life bad yeah um but at the same time especially with you know the banished duke and some of his speeches there is there yeah. is a clear appreciation of the good things of nature for whatever reason yeah. the the duke's line you know we shall see sermons in stone just yeah. just uh struck me on on this particular reading well um, his um his very first where when we first meet the the banished duke in act two his he opens act two with a, a monologue about how great yeah. the woods are which i think is where that line comes from mm-hmm. um if i remember right uh i think you're right yep it's there line 17 act two scene one line 17 right right in some of the first lines yeah you know i guess of act two so that's not yeah anyway so uh and yeah that whole monologue is just like to me act two is almost just like the epitome of this play in a lot of ways like i got through reading act two and i just like it's very quiet almost especially compared to some of the you know the very dramatic monologues of like hamlet for example um mm-hmm. or king lear or macbeth or any of the tragedies really but it's it's very quiet but it's just there's there's a similar just like exhilaration to me when i get done with especially that act yeah something occurred to me just in the structure of these acts uh-huh. you know act 1 really does soak you into the play it starts in media's race uh, right. and it's it's great uh it it sets things up and you get the characters down. Uh, Orlando really shines in Act One, yeah. And then in Act Two, you get the whole uh, scenes in the in the woods and everything. Um, sure. And it, it does get that pastoral idol. So maybe this is kind of getting to that theme that you're talking about because then as soon as Act Two gets done in that idyllic forest, then you get to Acts Three and Four, and it's all what the heck. All the fit hits right. the shan. <laughs> right. Uh, and not not in a plot way either. It's just what what's going on. So maybe the the commentary yeah. there is that the forest can be just as crazy and meaningless as the city, uh, right? Which is much more you know a, a reading that you hear much more in Midsummer Night's Dream, for example. Yeah, where sort of the entire plot again, you know, like in a lot of Shakespeare comedies, really the entire plot just goes into the forest, mm-hmm. and the forest is a symbol of like peace and and contentment. But it's also a symbol of, uh, you know, it, there's there's a madness that goes on. Yes. Um, and that's sort of more dramatically highlighted, I would say, in Midsummer Night's Dream. But it's definitely it's definitely here in As You Like It as well. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, um, as you were talking, another thing that I had thought of occurred to me. And, you know, I will I will preface this by saying I'm not what you'd call a Shakespeare scholar. I've read a lot about Shakespeare but not in like a systematic way or one where I've had to defend my theses. So take that as you will. But, you know, I do know that theater in Shakespeare's day was much more sort of 
almost almost like a sporting event in some ways in that you know there's much more milling around this idea that you came in and sat quietly and respectfully in the dark was much less mm-hmm. uh you know that didn't really come into into fashion till like the 19th century in a lot of ways yeah um and it occurred to me because you know a lot of the most beautiful stuff in this play is in act two a lot of the the most beautiful speeches i think in midsummer night's dream are also in act two because that's when you introduce the fairies in in midsummer yeah and it occurred to me like maybe that you know maybe act one is like okay some the latecomers are still coming in people are still getting like sucked Hmm. into the story so you put all your most dramatic plot stuff and all of your like your suck them in type stuff where you have you know a big wrestling match in act one that i'm sure played quite well on stage definitely you know, you you hit them with that stuff in Act One and get them on your side, and then Act Two you introduce like the the subtleties and the you know the really beautiful stuff, um, mm-hmm. because they're sucked in, but they haven't been sitting long enough to get bored. Yeah. Um, now these again are just thoughts I had, and I don't know like enough of the the scholarship to to be real sure of these interpretations, but you know there that there's that for what it's worth. No, that's an um, interesting thought. I think even like Hamlet is structured in a similar way. You get all the draw draw people in stuff in yeah. Act One with like the ghost, uh, yeah, and everything, and then Act Two is where you get to the really deep plot. Uh, yeah, and even you know Hamlet's big old monologue, yep. the to be or not to be. Yep, uh, that's Act Two. Scene Act Two, Scene Two. Yep. Scene Scene One, Scene Two. Yeah. Scene Two. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's interesting. So what I was starting to say a few rabbit trails ago. Right? So many rabbit so, trails. We could go on for probably four hours talking about this play. Well, absolutely. Or any given Shakespeare play for that any, matter. Yeah. But we're going to keep um, it to an hour. We are. Yeah, of course we are. <laughs> also, I'm counting on you to, to watch the time because I definitely didn't look at what the clock said when we started. That's all right. I'll so. watch it. I'll keep my eye on it. Yeah. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Um, a kg kg son of a gun (laughs) anyway so all this plot stuff that we that we've talked about already pretty much all happens in act one right um all these sorts of sort of three sets of storylines um get launched in act one and you almost in a sense you could have sort of a sort of a real suspense type plot launch from that act right you really could like from act one you could potentially have a tragedy come out just yeah. tweak act one just a tad and you have a tragedy yeah. just, or a setup for a tragedy yeah or even just a setup for almost like a like a thriller you know you could keep it comedic yeah. but like mm-hmm. what if the dukes you know what if you hit that storyline of the duke sending guys into the forest after his daughter like what if that happens hardcore mm-hmm. you know what if there's some conflict between those guys in orlando or if those guys come upon the exile court you know there's just all kinds of like really tense potential there and then we get three acts of just like dinking around <laughs> absolutely dinking around like there's there's big speeches there's a lot of wit both from rosalind and, and oh, the fool especially um, well and how many fools are there i mean there's there's the yeah. fool but then there are others who are like i'll be a fool now and <laughs> right and that is one thing we could probably spend a whole hour talking about all by itself. Is that itself could be the a theme thesis. of fools and foolishness. Um, yeah. You know, even even Rosalind and, and uh, Celia choose to, to dress as men. And, a, you know, a little bit, obviously, that's like, you know, people are going to hassle men less. So there's a little bit of a 
rationale to it. Yeah. They probably didn't need to do that, though. No, probably Especially not. once they took Touchstone with them. There's, like, there's so much that people didn't need to do in this play. Right. Like, Rosalind's well, whole playing... thing where she's messing with Orlando in the last couple yeah. of acts... What the what yes. the heck? She didn't need to do any of that. Like, there's the whole comedy of errors situations where you've got reasons to cross-dress and not reveal yourself to your lover. She did not need right. to do this. None of that is in this, yeah. None of that was necessary. She was just messing around. Right. Which, like, so... Um, you know, we will... We, we can either continue to tiptoe around this or we can talk about talk. how Rosalind... Rosalind joins, you know, Juliet and and you know several other of the the women in Shakespeare as these like very like very intelligent. Was that Portia? Yeah, um, you know these very intelligent women who just run rings around pretty much everybody else in the play, including the guy that they fall in love with. Yeah. Um, you know part part of this I get from from Harold Bloom's book Shakespeare: The Invention of the Human. Where he talks about, oh, I was wondering if if you would, uh, uh I have I that read handy. like part one of his discussion on as you like it, so like I only okay. have my feet wet on as you like it from Harold Bloom's book. I part gotcha. I was I was debating whether I wanted to read all of it before discussing it or leave it for later. And that that I think is a very legitimate debate because I know for quite a while after I read that book. Most of what I had to say about Shakespeare was just regurgitated Harold Bloom. And that's what I was trying to avoid. I didn't want to just yeah. regurgitate him. But I will say that I found myself disagreeing with him in the first part because he was talking <laughs> about how great this play is. And I'm like, it's okay. It's good. Yeah. But it's not the about... best. Oh, yeah. He really loves this play, doesn't he? He loves it. He absolutely yeah. loves it. Yeah. Um, and I And I think I'm probably much more on his side in that sure. specific opinion. Though I, you know, it's I do have plenty of disagreements with him in that book. Sure, um, but he's not on this podcast, though, so he can't speak for what's himself. That? He's not on this You're podcast. Right. That's, that's exactly right. So I was gonna say that I do feel like disagreeing with him. You know, I'm disagreeing with someone who, if I met them in person, would literally make me unable to speak because of how intelligent they were. Yep. You know, um, he doesn't actually. I've heard this about Harold Bloom, that when he's writing about Shakespeare, he never has a copy of Shakespeare in front of him. He's quoting it from memory. That's just infuriating. I know. I I don't know how apocryphal it is. Right. But I Um, read it in a scholarly source. (laughs) Right. So. Uh, Yeah. Anyway, you know, Rosalind, and, and Harold Bloom says this about Juliet, I know, and at least one or two other of Shakespeare's women, where they're cle- they clearly outclass their men. Yes, like they're clearly vastly more intelligent than the the man that they um, end up with. And almost Bloom argues that there's almost a sense that they just sort of get to this point where they're like, "All right, it's time to be in love now." <laughs> um, okay, he'll do. <laughs> and it's that they have this, you know, this um. Which is often how I feel about my own wife, quite frankly, that, like, they have this sense of, like, you know, I'm way more, I'm way smarter than, than that person, but, like, all of the things, like, no mate is ever going to be perfect, and, like, all of the things that I want in a mate are in him, so I'll figure out how to, like, rope him in. I'll work with that. Um, yeah, exactly. 
that's a lot of what Rosalind is doing when she's messing with Orlando is, you know, it's it's a little bit, and this this feels reductive, but I'm going to say it anyway. It's a little bit that idea that, you know, a person's character is not shown by who they have or how they treat the person they're having dinner with. It's shown by how they treat the waiter or waitress. Yep. You know, I think there's a little bit of that going on. Who is he when he's not with me? Um, How would he woo me? And then, of course, she gets all of the all of the good parts of getting wooed while not having to take any of the risks because Orlando thinks he's just this shepherd boy. Um, (laughs) Which is just so messed up. (laughs) (laughs) Like, okay, she's a woman pretending to be a man acting like a woman. And in Shakespeare's day, the actor would have been a man. So a man playing a woman pretending to be a man pretending to be a woman. Right. You know that Shakespeare was just like, Grinning with glee as he absolutely, that he thought he was so smart, so smug. The jerk. well, he, he he was, he was very smart. Yeah, I know, I know he was, but like, <laughs> he he knew he was, and that's what right. I have a problem with. <laughs> <laughs> so, here's my original point that maybe we'll get to by the end of this podcast. We'll get there. <laughs> um, so we we have all this plot in Act One. We have three acts of just dinking around. And then in Act 5, everything gets resolved offstage. Yeah, oh my gosh. Yes. There are at least two resolutions of things that happened in Act 1 that instead of, like, there being any plot buildup, any, you know, like, scenes in between, it's just, oh, well, uh, I'm a messenger from this person, and he's had a complete change of heart due to something that happened completely outside of the action of this play. So... Yep. Good, I guess. Everyone gets their lands back, right? And the fact that it happens at least twice, again, tells me that this is not unintentional. Yeah. You know what I mean? This is not Shakespeare just, like, for getting bored with a plot line or forgetting about a plot line and tying it back quick. This is, this is, this is very intentional. Yes. Can I add to that intentional aspect? Because there is yeah. another duo of things that, because it's a duo, means it's intentional, and it's related in Act uh-huh. 5, uh, there is a literal deus ex machina. Yes, yes. There, the god Hymen appears and right. said, let, let me just read his line from Act 5, Scene 4. Peace, ho, I bar confusion, tis I must make conclusion of these most strange events. Here's eight that must take hands to join in Hymen's bands of truth, if truth holds true contents. Literally. Yeah. The god Hymen appears to fix everything, and that is exactly the problem with Greek comedies that was brought up, that brought about the term deus ex machina. The god Apollo would appear from this machine, and because everything was going horribly, but this was supposed to be a comedy, the god would appear and fix everything and say, you marry you, you marry you, you marry you, deus ex machina. That's exactly formulaic what Hymen does. Right. So initially, okay, when I read that bit, uh, uh-huh. there in Act 5, Scene 4, we're getting to the end of the play. I'm like, okay, Shakespeare, you know that this is just being stupid and silly, and we've just been goofing off for three acts. And so <laughs> you're bringing in this god. And that's where I ultimately decided, like, this is something you could see on Adult Swim today. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's going crazy. We're just wild, right. gallivanting off in the forest. 
And how we're going to end this episode. Eh, let's bring a god in to fix it. Yes. Okay. Right. So it, this this is the adult swim of Shakespeare plays. Um, so these days, uh, if it did happen on Adult Swim, it would be like Neil deGrasse Tyson or, <laughs> yes. you know, John Green or something. Exactly. Yes. Um, so, okay. That's, that's where, like, seeing that, I was like, okay, okay, I'm appreciating what's happening here. I, right. Up and to I, that I, point, I, within those acts where they're just going wild, I, yeah. I was thinking, okay, this is, there's some good stuff here. This is fun, but this isn't the substantial Shakespeare stuff I really want. But there sure. I was like, okay, okay. And then when it got even better was in, uh, well, just a few lines later, uh, when, uh, Jacques de Boy appears, the second brother. Yes. Um, yes, yes. and he brings in his monologue. Also, this is where he's resolving something off stage. And what happened off right. stage was, uh, Duke Frederick, that's the usurper Duke. Duke Frederick, hearing how that everyday men of great worth resorted to this forest, addressed a mighty power which were on foot in his own conduct, purposely to take his brother here and put him to the sword, and to the skirts of this wild wood he came, where, meeting with an old religious man after some question with him, was converted both from his enterprise and from the world. Again, it's a deus ex machina. Right, and that's one of the that's one of the scenes I was talking about too. It's yep. just like. This this resolves something that's been part of the tension as far back as almost the beginning of the play, but it just it it has nothing to do with the plot itself. You know, it doesn't logically follow from nope. anything that happened. It's not like some religious man was introduced in Act Three and was nope. like, "Hey, let me meet this guy." No, it's just you know, um, yeah. And it's interesting. I I just want to go back to the Hyman Hyman bit again. Because it, it follows that, that line that you were talking about, about things that are unnecessary. Yeah. Right? Because the whole, the whole bit is like, you know, Rosalind has just set this up herself. Yep, it was um, going to be concluded by Rosalind. Hyman didn't yeah. need to be there. <laughs> he didn't need to be there at all, to the point that, like, some interpreters, or and I think some stagers, have just either said Hyman's not really there, or that, like, it was supposed to be that everyone sort of, like... Rosalind was so good and like maybe because she tore off her boys clothes and she was a beautiful woman again like she glowed like a god like there's that interpretation eh, I don't like it I don't like it either but I'm just saying it's it's there in the text to to the extent that a lot of people have you know have seen it that there. way and sure and the point and it's it, and it does make a good point like if you took Hyman out, Rosalind would just come in and make the same speech and do all the same things. The play would go exactly you know I mean? the same without him. <laughs> yeah, which, which, so it almost feels to me like Shakespeare making fun a little bit of the Greeks. That's kind of the and impression then, I got. You know, it's it's not like because with the with the Deus Ex Machina and the Greek plays, the play wouldn't have been resolved well without the god. Here, yeah. it's like it's just sort of an extra little thing. And if that that if that if Hyman wasn't in there, the exact same plot would have happened from that point forward. Which kind of brings up another theme of the whole play, and that being the play, uh, right? Being a theme. Okay, so Shakespeare with Hyman, the character that he brings in in Act Five, making fun of Greek plays. Uh, mm-hmm. That's part of this whole tapestry of dealing with plays. Like like we said earlier, right. the whole line, all the world's a stage, is in this play. Right. 
Uh, and that's right. mentioned uh, a few different times where there's the play mentioned. Uh, it comes later in the play. It might even be in Act 5 or later in Act 4 uh, uh-huh. where there is mention Christopher Marlowe is in this play. Right. Um, uh, yeah, there it is. Uh, oh, it's Act 3, Scene 5. Uh, it's the character Phoebe. Um, who says, dead shepherd, now I find thy saw of might, whoever loved that loved not at first sight. Uh, and that's a line right. from Christopher Marlowe. He is the dead shepherd because he's dead by this point. Uh, right. And so the play is making its way in here. Um, Which as an historical aside, um, a lot of interpreters think that that is sort of Shakespeare's encoded way of saying that Marlowe was assassinated. Okay. Um, possibly by the queen yeah. uh which one of the you know marla's death is is sort of mysterious historically yeah. and that's one of the interpretations the other one being that he just sort of died in a bar brawl but you know which is likely but also like if you were gonna assassinate someone secretly obviously you'd get them in a bar brawl where that'd be the best way know. to do it yeah um especially someone like marla who was kind of known as a lush you know yeah yeah um, but then, yeah. uh, so continuing that thought of the whole play, it, the play ends with a commentary on this play and that's with right. the epilogue with, and I love, okay, this is where Rosalind really comes through as like the best character ever right. um, yeah. with this epilogue, uh, who comments on the fact that she's a woman giving this epilogue, which is weird. Right. Uh, but then also Though she does have the clause. If I were a woman. Yep, yep, that's what I was going to bring up, where it's, okay, it's deliberately pointed out that, no, this is actually a boy playing this woman. Right. Uh, and Which, the whole, like, that's where the, the title of the play comes from. Um, yes. That uh, I can't, uh, what a case am I then, that I'm neither a good epilogue, nor can insinuate with you in the behalf of a good play. Uh, so she can't uh, right. convince the people that this is a good play, but uh, charging the women... Uh, like as much of this play as please you. And then the the men, between you and the woman, the play may please. So that's where As You Like It uh, comes out. Like this play as right. as you like it. As you like it. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so you mentioned, you mentioned the idea of it being a high comedy, right? Yeah. Uh, and as I understand, and again, you know, disclaimers about my own scholarly qualifications here. As I understand, this one and uh, Love's Labor's Lost and a couple of the other sort of, you could say, more talky, more a uh, little bit more highfalutin comedies, mm-hmm. um, I've I've read, including, I think, in Harold Bloom, that they were probably written for the court, okay. um, which is a different, obviously, rhetorical context than writing for like sort of a very popular playhouse now they probably played at the globe as well they were written for the queen in her court which meant that there was a much higher focus on like the wit and the you know the sort of being being fast and funny and witty mm-hmm. um rather than sort of the sensationalist uh you know blood and guts or like you know dick jokes um <laughs> Now that that said, there are plenty of dick jokes in this play. Um, yes, yes, there are. <laughs> but we could probably we could probably do an hour on that at some point. Probably. Uh, not that we need to. But no, we don't need to. Um, That'll be for the patrons. So, <laughs> yes. Uh, um, no, but the the idea of this being uh, a court play. So- 
kind of adds yeah. a little bit of weight to that scene that I was talking about where Touchstone has his dialogue with the shepherd about yeah. being in court. Uh, wast, thou, wast ever in court, shepherd? No, truly. Then thou art damned. <laughs> Which is... Right, right. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's good. Uh, and, you know, and obviously that's a little bit of meta if it's playing in court. Like, yep. you know, it's, and it's, it's a little bit of Shakespeare sucking up to his patrons, which he did... Oh, yeah. Pretty masterfully and pretty, uh, pretty a, a lot. Let us say yes, frequently. Um, yeah, frequently. <laughs> Voluminously. Uh, what's that? Voluminously. Yes. Um. Sometimes, like structuring the entire plot of his play to do so. Yeah. What? Yeah. What? Macbeth. What? Um. What? <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um. Yeah. So, you know, th so there's that. So, like, he's he's clearly pleasing sort of his, his most important audience there. Um, but, you know, the the fact that this, you know, that we have this plot in the beginning um, that's sort of court court heavy in the first act, or at least, you know, it's it's not pastoral yet. It's it's in the in the mundane world. And then you go into the forest for three acts and and you have all of the sort of madness and then you have this resolution that's still in the forest even in act five mm -hmm. um, but like the only place you know and and it's interesting too like even those those like deus ex machina resolutions with with jacques du bois and you know some of these they're that's very greek also so you almost have this very greek fifth act like it reminded me of the climax yeah. of oedipus rex when all of the the climactic parts of the tragedy are just spoken by a messenger who has one single gigantic monologue right at the end of the play yeah um it's like similar to that but in a comedy key so uh but what you feel like then you know the the structure of the play with all this this farting around and this you know people just being okay, witty at each other and so forth um <laughs> is you you end up feeling like you've spent some time sort of farting around in the woods yourself yeah. You know what I mean? It's like it's like a it's like you've taken as as an audience member, you've taken a Woodside Idol um mm -hmm. simply by watching this play. Um so and it, so again, that's that's a large part of why I have to think that these three acts were not any kind of a mistake that Shakespeare knew exactly what he was doing. Sure. You know, and it gave him an excuse to get out some of some of his most witty passages, some of his most witty dialogues and some of his most beautiful uh speeches mm -hmm. yeah well some of his just kick butt funny speeches too yeah uh yeah. the speech where rosalind is insulting phoebe right <laughs> just <laughs> hilarious yeah, uh -huh. it's, it's so mean but it's hilarious <laughs> <laughs> right uh, even but... you know even all the all the world's a stage um given as it is by like the melancholy archetype yeah. in the play you could make that quite a funny speech oh absolutely um, you know, you can make that quite a funny speech, even played sort of melancholy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and while, while, while I've mentioned that, I do want to hit back at one thing Harold Bloom, I believe, says in, in Invention of the Human, um, where he takes that speech as one of several places where he thinks Shakespeare uh, essentially sort of comes out as a, as a nihilist. Oh. This idea that, that Shakespeare... You know, there's a lot of talk about uh shakespeare's um 
you know, was he was he a good Christian? Was he a secret Catholic? Mm-hmm. Um, was he just secretly an atheist pretending to be a Christian? You know, um, and Bloom says, uh, you know, based on sort of the last three to four lines of the speech, uh, last scene of all that ends this strange eventful history is second childishness and mere oblivion sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. Sure. So, you know, it's it's this idea that, like, uh, um, Jacques doesn't give us anything beyond death in, in this speech. Uh, you know, the idea of hope in an afterlife or anything like that. Which I have two rebuttals for, and you may have more, which Go I would ahead. welcome. But rebuttal number one, um, if you read Ecclesiastes, you hear language awfully similar to this. Yep. Um, you know, even though the conclusion of Ecclesiastes is, you know, love the Lord your God. Basically. Right. Yep. It's, you know, it's a very sort of sort of faith bound um, work. Ecclesiastes. It's is. the idea that, yeah, there's nothing without God. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, some some Christian traditions interpret the, the sort of death and resurrection of of believers to be that once you die, there is nothing until the last day, that there isn't sort of heaven as a holding place, that the the resurrection of the flesh is, you know, literally a new life. Mm-hmm. You know, that there's, in, in a sense, there's like void for a while, or there's blankness for a while. And, you know, I'm not saying that's what I believe, but I'm saying that's that's, that's... a legitimate part of the Christian heritage, yep. the theological heritage. Thing number two is that Jacques, as I've mentioned, is the uh, archetype of melancholy in this play? Of that's course, exactly what I was going to say. Would, yeah, yeah, you know, it's, and that's that's one of those things where you have to keep the rhetorical situation of the character in mind, which Shakespeare always did. Yep. Which can be why he's so hard to pin down as to to what he actually believes, because right. it's like is he saying this, or is just his or character? Is it just a character? But yeah, you know, Jacques would go straight to, oh yeah, death is just oblivion. Right. Well, it's kind of like Polonius. Uh, yeah. In Hamlet, you know, he says all these things. Brevity is the soul of wit. Well, maybe, but Polonius himself <laughs> didn't uh, demonstrate that. So, like, how much can you believe anything that that? Says? So, like, yeah, the context of the character right. is important. So. Um, Michael, I my computer is about to die, so I'm gonna run and grab the cord quick. Okay, you do that. You're allowed. Doesn't count for the key break. <laughs> Why, I pray you, who might be your mother that you insult, exult, and all at once over the wretched? What, though you have no beauty, as by my faith I see, you no more in you than without candle may go dark to bed. Must you therefore be proud and pitiless? Why, what means this? What are you doing? Why do you look on me? I see no more in you than in the ordinary of nature's sail work. Odds my little life, I think she means to tangle my eyes too. No faith, proud mistress, hope not after it. Tis not your inky brows, your black silk hair, your bugle eyebrows, nor your cheek of cream that can entame my spirits to your worship, you foolish shepherd. Wherefore do you follow her? Like foggy south, puffing with wind and rain, you are a thousand times a properer man than she a woman. "'Tis such fools as you that makes the world full of ill-favored children. "'Tis not her glass, but you that flatters her. "'And out of you she sees herself more proper than any of her liniments can show her. "'But, mistress, know yourself down on your knees, and thank heaven fasting for a good man's love, "'for I must tell you, friendly in your ear, sell when you can. "'You are not for all markets. "'Cry the man mercy. Love him. Take his offer.'" 
Foul is most foul, being foul to be a scoffer. So take her to thee, Shepherd. Fare you well. Excellent work. That's Rosalind's insulting monologue. I I caught I got it halfway through. So. Yes. <laughs> it's like, and it is. It's just a wonderful, wonderful so thing. So wonderful. Um, I did have a thought uh, on the structure of this play uh, as we've been talking oh. about it. Another one uh, that. Um, it starts kind of strong and ends really strong, and in the middle it kind of goes all over the place. Right. Another play that gets criticized that way uh, for for having a strong beginning and a strong end, but a really why do you have this even middle? Right. Uh, not a Shakespeare play, a Marlowe play, Doctor Faustus, as oh, you sure. comedically mentioned at the beginning, uh, that it's got uh, a very clear beginning uh yeah and then a very clear end and there's a straight line between the beginning and the end to the point that sure. uh scholars have said you can just cut out acts two through four and you've got a full right. perfect play in acts one and act five sure. um presumably a fairly short play but it would be very very short yes but you'd it would be full with a clear beginning middle and end but uh, sure. in Acts two through four, that's where Marlowe or uh, where um, Faustus goes around with Mephistopheles, just goofing off. Not in the woods, yeah, but yeah, you yeah. know, in the Vatican. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, well, sometimes in the woods. It was in the woods a little bit, but just going around yeah. and doing whatever the heck he wanted, which kind of makes sure. Doctor Faustus the tragic antithesis of this play. Um, right. It's which interesting. is in- interesting. That you say that because one of the themes I picked up in this play uh, was the theme of the prodigal son. Sure. Which, you know, I'd, I'd noticed it to some extent before, but even when I was just reading the very beginning, you know, it, uh, maybe, I'm trying to even see, maybe like 20 to 30 lines in Act 1, Scene 1, which, yes, is all that I actually read of this play. Uh, <laughs> Orlando says, shall I, you know, or- Orlando and Oliver are talking about Oliver. I'm going to take a pee break. To... I know I lose. Oh, oh man. All right. I'm going to send you a link. I'm back. Hi. In my defense, it took us like, 45 minutes longer than expected to start this podcast. (laughs) For which I do apologize on behalf of my technology and my wife and also me. That's okay, though. I know this means I merit some punishment and I will willingly bow to my fate. Uh, You have your phone handy? I do. I just texted you a link. Oh, no. Oh dear. This looks horrifying. Alright. You are familiar with William McGonagall, are you not? A little bit. Okay. So for the for the gentle listener's sake who may not be, William McGonagall Oh yeah. Uh is considered w- the worst poet in the English language. Therefore, of course, he has an entire website devoted to his poems. <laughs> McGonagall, online, M-C-G-O-N-A-G-A-L-L, 
then there's just a little hyphen and then online.org.uk. And it's a beautiful website, like both Michael and like everyone. I highly encourage you to uh, explore it because they do a wonderful job of preserving the, the heritage of the worst poet to ever write in, in English. Um, and what they do on this website, besides highlighting, you know, the there's a poem he wrote called The Taybridge Disaster, which is considered the worst of but besides, you know, besides highlighting a few gems like that, they have a a feature called the McGonagall Gem of the Day, where it's just <laughs> a randomized link to one of his poems, all of which I believe they have on the website. What I have sent to Michael just now in compensation for his loss, gentle listener, is just whatever was on the Gem of the Day, be called Beautiful Balmoral. Uh, and Michael's challenge is read as much of this poem as he can without smiling oh no okay let me get uh, my serious face on smiling obviously laughter and other products of smiling is also Uh, not so whenever you're ready oh dear this is a long poem i don't like it yeah beautiful balmoral ye lovers of the picturesque Away and see beautiful Balmoral near by the river Dee. There ye will see the deer browsing on the heathery hills, while adown their sides run clear sparkling rills, which the traveller can drink of when he feels dry, and admire the dark river Dee nearby, rolling smoothly and silently on its way, which is most lovely to see on a summer day. There the trout do sport and play during the live-long summer day. Also plenty of salmon are there to be seen. Glittering. (laughs) So bad. (laughs) (laughs) So bad. Right? Uh, It's like, it's like a cannibalized Dr. Seuss. (laughs) That's what this is. Yes. Also plenty of salmon are there to be seen. That's so, that's so stupid. (laughs) <laughs> and he uses so many more words uh, than necessary even from a victorian poet yes i didn't it's even get just... halfway no nah, i didn't expect you to quite frankly oh see i was thinking i could do it i, was <laughs> I could do it but nope i couldn't nope oh that was bad uh, that was wonderful that was a good that was a good loss <laughs> thank you <laughs> okay so I don't know what our time looks like at this point. That's about at the end of our time. Okay. Did you have anything that you wanted to say finishing I endingly? Pretty much said all that I have to say. I can't think of anything additionally. Okay. Did you finish your point about Dr. Faustus? Yes, I did. Yeah. Okay. That was basically it. Which, I mean, the argument for the whole oh. middle of Dr. Faustus is basically the yeah. same argument that you're giving that it was intentional just goofing around but on the tragic side of things sure. it's the it, it's pointing out really the vanity of Dr. Faustus's life at sure. that point that he's, sure. he doesn't have meaning and that's his whole complaint at the beginning he's bored he has sure. no meaning to his life and then the irony is that in the middle of this play his whole life is meaningless play sure. now I, I did remember a point I started to make and that was um, this whole prodigal son thing that, yes. that came out of your your Dr. Faustus. So um, Orlando says within the first 20 lines or so, 
and I just want to throw this in here because I just it's just one of those textual things that I love. So Oliver won't give him his inheritance. Orlando is demanding it. Oliver's refusing. Orlando says, shall I keep your hogs? Mm. What prodigal portion have I spent that I should come to such penury? Penury? However you say that word. But um, just the fact that you have in the first part of that sentence, shall I keep your hogs, which, you know, the the son in the prodigal son story in the Bible, obviously, Mm -hmm. ends up sleeping with the hogs. And then the the word prodigal is right there in that next sentence. Yeah. You know, again, not a mistake and just something that ties in with really the whole theme of the play. Um, And almost could be, you know, an interpretive interpretive argument for the deus ex machina. You know, it's it's uh, this idea that, you know, in the prodigal son, you know, the, the whole point of that reunion of things that should not be split but it's a supernatural reunion. It's not one that like the the mm-hmm. person in it causes or merits. And you know, it, it, I I admit it might be a stretch that uh, in the end the the reunions that happen are not merited or caused by any of the people who benefit from them. Hmm. It's in a sense, it's a function of grace and it's a function of some outside power sort of dipping in one way or another. You know, you even have the um, the Duke's conversion by a holy man, by a hermit. Yep. You know, in the in the conclusion of the play. Yeah, well, and Phoebe, too, who wants to marry Rosalind, thinking that she's a man, and then right. being told, nope, you're going to marry this shepherd boy who's been pursuing you the entire last three acts. And Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's good. Good. All right. Cool. Well this concluding our episode we have no we didn't have a scotch we didn't have a i mean we had a text yeah so i mean we can talk about rating the text ratings i was i was gonna say like it's it's shakespeare right it's shakespeare ought to read it you know what? I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give a, a rating out of five stars. And here's here's how I'm gonna do it. Just the five star rating is ranking all of Shakespeare's plays at the point where uh-huh. I would put like Hamlet at five. Sure. Um, uh, I'm gonna put. You know, as as we started discussing this, I did gain an appreciation for it a little bit more. Sure. So I'll say that. Uh, so I will give this play a three point five out of five. Okay. Sure. I started at you know um, about a two point five or three. I was like, eh, it's okay. good. It's good Shakespeare. Right. But like a one in Shakespeare terms would still be at least a three in any terms. <laughs> right. Right. Um. Yeah. No. I. I get you. Uh. You know, and I think I would have to give this play at least a four mm. myself. Maybe even a four point five. It's certainly not doesn't reach the the poetic heights of Hamlet or uh, King Lear. No. Um, you know, but it's so subtle and it's does it's so effective in its subtlety. Like it's one of those things that's very subtle, but it almost wor- would work on you in performance, even if you mm-hmm. didn't appreciate the subtlety. Um. And you know, I I appreciate that that level of skill. 
um, and that level of just uh, you know sort of sort of burying the the uh, the gold in this one rather than you know putting it right there on the on the surface. Sure. So I guess I'm gonna say a four. I'm gonna say a four. All right. Sounds good. Cool. All right. Well, this has been the Tapestry Radio Network Shakespeare Festival special of Michael and Ethan in a Room with Scotch. Uh, Next week will come out a regular episode uh, in which we will be discussing the book Plain Song, as discussed in our last regular episode. Um, Plain Song by Kent Haruf. Kent Haruf. H-A-R-U-F. Haruf. Uh, We're going to alarm the dog if we keep doing this. Probably, yeah. Um, she's oblivious that's okay (laughs) that's okay so yeah we will see you next time gentle listener yeah we will be back uh, in a room and we will have scotch in that room we will next time there will be scotch in the meantime rate us wherever your podcasts are sold follow us on itunes and twitter rate us on itunes rate us on twitter on podcast addict rate us on stitcher yeah Read us anywhere you do. Like that's if you like the show and you want pe- more people to know about it, mm-hmm. that's the most effective way. And talk to us about it. Tell us your thoughts on as you like it, so that we can tell you you're wrong on the next episode when we or are that you're right. In a if room. you absolutely agree with me specifically in every particular aspect. Don't agree with Ethan. Don't agree with Michael. No. Agree with me. Not agree with me. No me. Me. No me. We're going to end this episode now. It's done. Okay. We're done. Bye. Bye.
obscurantism, and obfuscation. Orally observed, gentle listener, obviated objects of oblivion are bambulating about, offered unto you in the Tapestry Radio Network. Tapestryradio.org, from our fancy to yours. Thank you.